0: Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chespril Baptist Church. We're in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Jeremiah. The first message in this series was entitled Facing Opposition, that is the name of the series. And this week, we're gonna talk about facing hypocrisy. Please enjoy. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter seven. Jeremiah chapter seven. As you know, we started a new, uh, pro, a new uh, sermon series next week, uh, last week, entitled Facing Opposition. And uh, this is a deep dive into the life of Jeremiah. And uh, this will be a four or five week series in the life of Jeremiah. And last week we talked about facing opposition. Now this week we're going to talk about facing something else. So if you have your places in Jeremiah chapter 7, one last time, if you're physically able, I'm going to invite you to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're going to read seven verses beginning in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse number 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor... If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, and the Lamb I gave your fathers forever and ever. Last week we were facing opposition. This week we're going to be facing hypocrisy. Facing hypocrisy. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for this great prophet who lived such an amazing life but preached a message that nobody wanted to hear. Lord, I pray we can look at his life and look at his message and many, many thousands of years later, Lord, you can speak to us through the pages of Scripture and change our lives for the better. Be with us today. Clear our minds and our hearts to receive the good seed of the Word of God. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. There was a man who owned a zoo, and he prided himself in having an exotic zoo with a bunch of animals, and it was a unique zoo. It wasn't like other zoos because he had such a great uh, 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 different variety of animals in his zoo. Well, one night he came in and his prized gorilla died. He couldn't have that. The show must go on. So he hired an actor in a gorilla suit. And he put the actor out in the gorilla suit and he tried to act like a gorilla and stay away and make the noises. But the guy really didn't know how to act like a gorilla and he's trying his best and he gets a little close to a ledge and falls into another enclosure and he falls into the lion's den. And this guy in the gorilla suit, he's screaming in terror and he thinks he's about to die and he's crying out, ah, save me, save me. When all, the, all of a sudden the lion looks at him and says, hey, you better be quiet, you're going to get us both fired. Because the guy was in a lion suit too. And uh, so one of the things that we have to deal with is one of the things that Jeremiah had to deal with, and that is hypocrisy. People saying one thing and doing another. So let's provide a little context for the passage that we're talking about this morning. The people of Israel are still reeling and they're still mourning the death of the good king Josiah. This particular story takes place. Remember, uh, Jeremiah in his ministry uh, preached through the reign of five kings. This was under the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is a puppet king set up uh, from Egypt. So Egypt is really in control of Judah at this time. The nation is going through a spiritual reversal because Josiah had brought uh, Israel back to God and brought the southern kingdom of Judah and reinstituted the feast and started worshiping in the temple again. And now the nation is doing a reversal from that. And now the sermon, we just read a sermon by Jeremiah. And what I want to let you know is is that Jeremiah was almost killed for the sermon that he just preached. You see, God commanded Jeremiah to go to the gate of the temple and preach to people as they came in the door. How would you like it if I stood outside the church as you came in to the church this morning and preached? You dirty, rotten hypocrites, you better get... No, I wouldn't do that. But, uh, you know, that's what Jeremiah did. He stood out the temple gate. And the point is, this used to be a dedicated job. There used to be somebody's job, it was their job to stand outside the door of the temple and preach to people just to get them to reflect on themselves before they entered the temple for worship. But for many years now, nobody stood at the gate and nobody preached and that job was left vacant for many years. And so God came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, I want you to volunteer your services. I want you to go stand in front of the temple and I want you to preach at people as they entered the gate. But you see, the problem that God was having with, remember, by this time the northern kingdom is gone... It's just the southern kingdom of Judah. And the problem that God was having with Judah at this time is they loved their ritual services, but they still abided in their sinful lifestyles. Man, they would still go to church and they would have their services and they would have their ceremonies and, man, they'd have the robes and they'd have the incense and, man, it was first class and it was right down the line, but then they would go home and still abide in their sinful lifestyles. They would offer their children to the gods of Baal in the morning and in the evening they'd go to temple. Let's go to verse 4. Verse 4 says they were trusting in the deceitful words and the, the, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they would chant that over and over, and they would say it over and over, as if they're trying to convince themselves that as long as they went to temple, as long as they participated in the feast, as long as they lit the incense, as long as they put on the long flowing robes, as long as they crossed the I's and they 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 crossed the T's and dotted the I's and they did everything just perfect in the temple that they could go out during the week and live however they wanted to live. Verse 8 says they were trusting in deceitful words. They were telling themselves lies. Go down to verse 9. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house." which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, that you may do all of these abominations. You see, the fact of the matter is, God is saying, you're not worshiping me. What you're actually doing is you're using me as an excuse to go live how you want to live. You come to church and you do your little thing and you say a little ritual and you go home and you do whatever you want to do. There's no obedience in your life. Now, verse 11 is a famous verse. The reason why verse 11 is a famous verse is because it's a verse quoted by Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ quotes a verse, it automatically becomes a famous verse. Verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So you know the story? Jesus comes in the temple and they got the money changers in the temple and a river of dirty money and they're extorting people and telling people that their sacrifices aren't good so they can buy their sacrifices. And of course, you can't use your money. You got to use temple money. And they've got a deal worked out and it's just extortion and it's money laundering and it's bribery. And Jesus had enough. So he goes in the temple and he throws over the tables. He makes a whip. He chases people out of the temple. And he says, my house is a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a house of merchandise. You have turned it into a den of thieves. And Jesus chases them out of the temple. Go to verse 14. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your father's. As I did to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is a name that they use for the northern kingdom. So when you see Ephraim, that means the northern kingdom. So what's going on here and what Jeremiah is addressing is the Jewish historians of the day. The Jewish apologists of the day, the Jewish rabbis and their Jewish teachers would stand up and they had convinced the Jews of Jeremiah's day that it didn't matter what they did during the week. They had convinced them of this. You see, because God had promised that Jerusalem will endure, so it didn't matter what they did. So they were teaching the Jews that they were invincible. That it didn't matter what they did because God promised Jerusalem would endure and you can't go against God. So that means we're safe. It doesn't matter that Assyria is getting stronger. It doesn't matter Babylon is getting stronger. It doesn't matter that Egypt is in charge of us right now. None of that matters. We can keep doing what we want to do because Jerusalem will endure. And they were firmly convinced that the reason why they didn't fall when the northern kingdom fell, was because Jerusalem was in Judah. That's what they were convinced of. And these phony prophets and these phony teachers and these phony priests would stand up and they would twist the scriptures to make them say what they wanted to say. It's not like that happens today at all. I'm sure nobody does that. But, you know, that's what these guys did. They twisted the Scriptures to make the Scriptures say what they wanted to say. They would stand up and they would read from the scroll of Samuel, and they would say, oh, you see here, Sam, the scroll of Samuel says, it says that, uh, that David will have an everlasting, an everlasting dynasty. It, it, says that, it says that Moses told us that the scepter will never leave from Judah. The psalmist, let's look in Psalms, and the psalmist says that God has made Zion his habitation. And when Ephraim fell, we were saved because of these prophecies. And the reason why Judah is here today and the reason why Jerusalem will never fall, no matter who comes against it, is because God gave us all of these promises in the Scripture. And Jeremiah gets up and says, let me tell you something, buddy, you got another thing coming. You got another thing coming. If you think you're invincible, you got another thing coming. If you think God isn't going to come against you. So Jeremiah preaches the message and he stands at the gate of the temple and he says, God is going to do to you exactly what he did to Shiloh. Okay, what is Shiloh? Shiloh was the first spiritual capital of Israel. When Israel came into the Promised Land, they crossed over the Jordan River, and they came into Canaan, the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh. You see, the, capital, the spiritual capital of Israel wasn't always Jerusalem. The first spiritual capital was Shiloh. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the Holy of Holies was. It's where the tabernacle was. It's where the priests were. Uh, 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 Shiloh was the place where Hannah dedicated her infant to the Lord, and Samuel was given to Eli to raise. Everything, the spiritual hub of Israel, was in Shiloh. But here's what happened to the Jews at Shiloh. They also got complacent. They thought that they could do whatever they wanted to do, and just because God was God and God was their God, they could go out and do whatever they wanted to do and it didn't matter. So one day they went to Shiloh and they got the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into battle and they said, doesn't matter how we live, it doesn't matter if we obey the law of Moses. All that matters is we got the Ark of the Covenant. So they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and they marched it into battle against the Philistines, and God showed him that they weren't invincible. That day they, they lost 30,000 men. The Ark of the Covenant was, was stolen away from them and was away from them for seven months. Through the providence of God, when they finally got the Ark of the Covenant back, it wasn't brought back to Shiloh. And Shiloh was abandoned. And Shiloh was destroyed. And it was never rebuilt. And today you can go and you can stand on the ruins of Shiloh. It is gone. It is no more. And Jeremiah is preaching and says, you are in the same boat. And if God abandoned Shiloh and the tabernacle isn't it was in it, what makes you think he isn't going to abandon Jerusalem with the temple in it? And that's what Jeremiah is trying to teach them. Jeremiah pleads with them, please repent, do right. In verse 16, Jeremiah's message ends and he gives, he's getting ready to give the invitation. Good Baptist preacher, getting ready to get, have everybody bow their heads and close their eyes and raise their hands. He's, he's getting to the end of the message. He's getting the invitation. And as he, after he gets done preaching and he goes into the invitation, God says something very interesting. He says, Jeremiah, don't pray. Don't pray for them, Jeremiah. Oh, man. Preacher not praying during the invitation time. That's that's wrong. That, that that's just doesn't feel right. Feels like something's missing. But God said, Jeremiah, if you pray for them, I won't answer you. So don't waste your time. They're either going to change or they're not going to change. Go down to verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices, and eat flesh. And the offerings of Israel, when you brought a, a meat offering, uh, the priest got to take some of that offering home. The priest got to eat the what was left over, or the priest got a portion of it. The burnt offerings were different. And the burnt offerings, all of the animal was completely consumed. It was all burnt up. There was nothing left. But God said, Hey. Instead, of you offering that meat? Why don't you take it and you go eat it? You know what God is saying? God is saying, look, you're not worshiping me anyway. You're worshiping idols. You're worshiping yourself. So you take the meat and you go eat it. Christian, let me tell you today that God does not want your worship at church if you are not living obedient at home he says, you're worshiping yourself. He says, why don't you go down the street, you build your own church, put your picture up on the wall and start worshiping yourself because you're doing the same thing. Here, you're not worshiping me. You can't worship me in church and live disobedient at home and think that you're worshiping me. I don't want that kind of worship. So this is the hypocrisy that that, that Jeremiah is dealing with. So, so what's the penalty for this hypocrisy? Go down to verse 32. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Himeon, but the valley of the slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, uh, because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky, for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah from the cities of, from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land will become ruin. Jeremiah says there's two consequences for your hypocrisy. One is death. One is death. You know that valley where the Canaanites sacrifice their babies to Molech, where you sacrifice your babies to Baal, guess what? Your blood will be shed in that valley. And they're going to bury you in that valley because there'll be no place to put the dead bodies. You're going to be killed by your enemies there. You know why? Because death is always a result of sin. Death is always the result of unrepented sin. Something always dies. The Bible says when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. But you know what? The second consequence is very interesting. The second consequence is silence. The verse says that some things will lose their voice. Joy will lose its voice. Joy will be silent. Gladness is silent. And then it says the bride will be silent. And then it says the bridegroom will be silent. Now, in context, it means there will be such a lack of joy that no one will marry and no one will be given in marriage. There'll be a joyless society. No joy, no happiness. But we can't look at this in 2022 with the full revealed word of God And see the words bride and bridegroom in a verse and not know that God has a deeper meaning than that. When you see in your Bible bride and bridegroom, it is always a picture of the church in Christ. Always a picture of the church in Christ. So you see, the church is the assembly of God. Well, it's always been that. Back then, the assembly of God was Israel. So how does the bride and the bridegroom speak? The Holy Spirit. You see, just because those in the Old Testament, just because they weren't indwelled by the Holy Spirit, did not mean that the Holy Spirit uh, was not, uh, that they were never filled by the Holy Spirit. It didn't mean the Holy Spirit didn't have a role. Very often in the Old Testament Scriptures, we see that people are filled with the Spirit of God. It, it happens often. Did you know that the Bible says over and over and over and over again that the Holy Spirit is a voice, do you know that the, whole, the, the, the the Holy Spirit is a voice ezekiel two two as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and sat on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me matthew ten nineteen but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you will say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose you what is to come. The Holy Spirit is a voice. And now the Old Testament saints in Jerusalem, they're about to lose that voice. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak of himself. He speaks of Christ. The Holy Spirit is how we communicate to God. It's how God communicates to us. It's the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. And guess what else? Joy and gladness. Those are fruits of the Spirit. The Old Testament saints in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom... They're about to lose the Holy Spirit. You know, the New Testament tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians 4 that me and you can do two things to the Spirit. The first thing it says we can do is we can quench Him and the second, we can grieve Him. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. To quench the Holy Spirit means to ignore the Holy Spirit. It means the Holy Spirit's talking to you. You ignore it. You pour water on it. You put the fire out. How you... Uh, grieve the Holy Spirit as you go back to the old life. You go back to the old life and live the life that you you, uh, tried to live the life that you lived before you were saved when the Holy Spirit has actually given you new life. So now we've got the consequences of this hypocrisy. We've got the consequences of living the life of a lukewarm Christian. We've got the consequences of living in unrepented sin, of going to church on Sunday and living like God doesn't exist on Monday. Those consequences are death and silence. So how do we fix it? How do we fix it, Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah gives us a broad statement and then he breaks it down. In verse 5 he says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, meaning there's, I'm going to have to see a change, You, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, this is really what it boils down to. I've told you before that there are two types of righteousness. There's vertical righteousness and there's horizontal righteousness. Vertical righteousness is my right standing before God. I have nothing to do with this. I can't do anything about it. This is the righteousness of Jesus. When I get saved, the righteousness of Jesus is applied to me, and now I am righteous before God. The second type of righteousness, horizontal righteousness, is righteousness before man. This is something I can do. This is something I can affect how I treat other Christians, how I treat other people. That's my horizontal righteousness. This horizontal righteousness... It's how we work out our salvation, how we work it out. We do it with fear and trembling. We show that we're saved. It's it's pure religion. Now, if you humbly repent, there will be a change in your life. What does repentance mean? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Now, some people say, you know, repentance really is a change of heart. Let me tell you something. You can't change your heart. You can't change your... Only God can change your heart. Only God can do that. Only God can change a heart. But you change your mind and that leads to a change of action. The Bible even says that repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But God through Jeremiah says, people of Judah, if you really have repent, will have, would have repented, then I'll see a change in your life. And, and these are the areas of your life that I'll see the change in. He says, you come to the temple, you come to the feast, you, you do all the stuff, you go through all the motions, but you don't, there's no change in you. So what he's going to go, he goes into three areas of hypocrisy that he deals with, and I'm, we're going to talk about these this morning. That was all introduction, by the way. All right. So here we go. Number one, serve others. Serve others. Verse 6. If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow. So this is a common expression, okay? And all it's a general statement, and it means help the helpless. That's what it means. It means help the helpless, okay? I'll give you an example. Deuteronomy uh, 14, 29. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who were in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied. So these are the helpless people. The foreigners or the sojourners, the people from other countries, they had no rights in your country. They could not own land. They were dependent on other people's compassion. The orphans and the widows, they can't live to support themselves. They're, they're, they're dependent. They relied on other people's Compassion. And what Jeremiah is saying is that Jews are disregarding this part of the law. They're, they're, not, they're not doing anything for the foreigner. They're not doing anything for the orphans and the widows. They're not helping the helpless. They're selfish. They're only in it to get what they can get from themselves. You know that verse in Deuteronomy that I just read? You know what it's telling Israel to do? It's saying every three years I want you to take the tithes, of the temple, I want you to put on a feast, I want you invite the helpless, feed them and take care of them at that feast. And do you think the Jews were doing that? Absolutely not. Over and over and over in the Bible, from Deuteronomy to Zechariah to Malachi, and all these books of the Old Testament, it says, do not mistreat the helpless. Do not extort them. Do not treat them unjustly over and over and over. And then we get to the New Testament. What does Jesus have to say? Matthew 25, 35, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they looked at the king and they said, King, when did we clothe you? When did we feed you? When did we invite you in? And the king answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you do it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Christian, there's a reason why you should stop living for yourself. There's a reason why you should find a way to serve other people. Why you should help other people. Why you should live to serve others. And I'll tell you what the reason is. Because you can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. You can't afford to be indifferent to the helpless. Because the helpless is Christ. You can't afford to, be, to, to waste your resources and your talents uh, uh, that God and Jesus has given you. You can't afford to do that because Jesus is waiting on you to help Him. You can't afford to sh- not share the gospel because Christ has gave us a commission and He's waiting on us to fulfill it. Man, we live such selfish lives, don't we? We take and we take and we take and we never give. We don't think about other people. Christians, we have to be different. You have to help people. You have to go out of your way. You have to step out of your comfort zone. You you can't just go to work, come home, go to work, come home, and just live for yourself. You have to find a way to help somebody else. The church is a great avenue to do that. But go out on your own. Find a way to help somebody James one twenty seven pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. God says, I'm tired of phony, selfish religion. I'm tired of people who come to church on Sunday and live like they want to live on Monday like I don't exist. How can we we ever say we are religious if we never help anybody? Number two, this is another area of hypocrisy that Jeremiah is uh, addressing. Number two is judge correctly. Judge correctly. Let's look at verse 6. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. So obviously we're talking about murder here. But you know what? There's a qualifying statement that changes things. It says, do not shed innocent blood in this place. So that prepositional phrase gives it a location. Were they really killing people in the temple? They were. They were. And see, what what this, did you know that the temple was used as a courtroom? And did you know that they would unjustly try people and throw people in jail, and kill people that did not agree with their reign? I know that doesn't sound familiar. Jehoiakim had a bad reputation for this. In fact, Jeremiah 26 gives this same account that's in Jeremiah 7. It's a paral- Jeremiah 6 is a parallel account, but it gives extra details, and it tells us what happens uh, when Jeremiah got done preaching this message. When he got done preaching this message, Jeremiah was arrested and he was sentenced to death. While he's on trial, everybody's against him. They're ready to kill Jeremiah. The Bible says there were some elder politicians. There were some older guys in the back who knew the word of God. And they stood up and they said, hey, before you put that guy to death, I got something in the scroll of Micah to read to you. You see, back in the day when Hezekiah was over the northern kingdom, uh, what was over the southern kingdom, back when Hezekiah was was king, uh, uh, Micah stood up and he preached the same message that Jeremiah is preaching to you now. And Hezekiah repented and changed things. And in 2 Chronicles 29, uh, Hezekiah restored temple worship and we weren't destroyed. He's preaching the same message that Micah is preaching. And so they didn't kill him. But you know what? Jeremiah shouldn't have been on trial in the first place. But there's another prophet that got arrested in Jeremiah 26 at the same time that Jeremiah got arrested, and he wasn't so lucky. He was a prophet by the name of Uriah. Uriah was at the, at the temple. He was at the gate. He was preaching the same message that Jeremiah was preaching. But when they came to arrest him, Uriah got away. He went down to Egypt and he went to go hide. But they found him. They arrested him. Uh, Jehoiakim had him, uh, had him extradited, came back to the temple, tried him. Killed him. The Bible says they killed him with the sword. They threw his body in the place with the common people. So they gave him a gruesome death and they desecrated this guy's body. So in the temple, they are judging people unjustly. Judging people unjustly. Guess what, Christians? We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. But well, wait a minute, I thought the Bible says that you're not supposed to judge people. You're not supposed to judge me. Please don't judge me. We're not supposed to judge people. That's not what it says. In fact, John seven twenty seven says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there's a right way to judge and there's a wrong way to judge. We have to be able to judge, folks. We have to be able to tell what is right and what is wrong. I mean, listen, the Bible says that if somebody in the church is living in open sin, we have the authority uh, to correct that according to Scripture. You can't do that if you can't judge people. But let's go to Matthew 7. Let's, let, let's look at the verse that everybody loves to read. I'll read it for you. Matthew 7.1, Judge not that you be not judged, Man, that's the verse that everybody loves. Don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. You're not supposed to do that. You can do anything I want because you can't judge me. Well, let's keep reading. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Why do you seek see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Man, it sounds like wrongly judging is very hypocritical, is it not? When we're worried about a speck, and we got a beam, I mean, I mean, they got a Lincoln log, and we got a stinking tree trunk, okay? And uh, so, I, I love what Romans two. 1 through 3 has to say about wrongly judging. I want to read you Romans 2, 1 through 3. Listen to this. Therefore, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? He says, you're judging people when you're guilty of the same things. You're guilty of the same things. You think you're going to escape judgment and they're not? So, okay, how how do we judge people then? If we're supposed to judge rightly, how do we do that? How do we judge people? Well, you, you judge yourself first. Don't look at anybody else without looking in a mirror first. You better judge yourself. Because if you've got a beam in your you've got a beam in your eye, you've got your own struggles, you're a sinner just like they are. Probably the only difference is, is their sins are public and yours are still secret. That's probably the only difference. Yours haven't found out yet. So you know what? Until you've judged yourself, you stay quiet. You don't say anything. If Jehoiakim would have judged himself before he judged Uriah, he never would have killed Uriah. But listen to me. Even if you do have to judge somebody, you still do it with grace. You still do it with forgiveness. Because guess what? You're not better than them. You're a sinner just like they are. So incorrectly judging someone or a situation is one of the highest forms of hypocrisy. And then number three, the third, third form of hypocrisy that we have to deal with here is stop idolatry. Stop idolatry. Let's look at verse six. Nor walk after other gods to your own ruin. Now, I've talked a lot about idolatry here recently, but... Preaching in Jeremiah, it's a hard subject to avoid because it's everywhere. But what is idolatry? We still have idolatry today, and not just the boot on the mantle. Idolatry is putting something over God. Anything you put over God is idolatry. I said last week, and I honestly believe this, that every sin goes back to the first commandment Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When you sin, you're putting something over God, okay? So I think at all, the core of it is an idolatry. But I want you to notice something about these people, is they want to have their cake and eat it too. You see, they're not just sacrificing the Baal. They're coming to the temple. They're coming to the feast, They're trying to enjoy the best of both worlds. They're serving two masters. And we know how Jesus said how that turns out. But get this. Did you know that the idolatry was also a family affair? Go down to verse 18. The children gather wood and the father kindles the fire. The women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings uh, to other gods and to, uh, in order to spite me. I mean, now we got the kids involved. Now dad's doing his part and mom's pitching in. Man, back in the day, at least mom and dad had the decency to send the kids out of the room when they did something they weren't supposed to do. But not anymore. Now we include the kids. Now the kids get to see us gossip. The kids get to see us go against the word of God. It's a family affair now. Doesn't matter if the kids see us disobey the Bible. Don't you think little Jimmy and little Susie, they know what's going on? Don't you think that they can recognize it? They pick up on a lot. Say, hey, I got two. They pick up on it a lot sooner than you think. Our society is pumping our families and telling us that God is not a priority. The gospel's a fairy tale. Do it in your spare time. Doesn't take precedence in your life. What matters is money. Let's go after money. Let's, but I'm, look, I'm not against you having a career and making money. I'm not against that. But, but just listen, God's priority. You know what our families need? As our family needs, needs parents who's not going to play both sides, our, our, we need grandparents that aren't going to play both sides. We need single people that aren't going to play both sides, that don't come to church and play a part. I was thinking about the biggest hypocrite in the Bible, and I think one of the biggest hypocrites in the Bible is Judas. Judas had everybody fooled. Judas got that 30 pieces of silver, and man, uh, uh, only, only Jesus knew Judas's motive. Everybody else had no idea it was Judas. When they said, hey, we're gonna, somebody's going to betray me, they didn't look and say, oh. I bet it's Judas. Look at that guy. No, they said, is it me? They thought it was them over Judas. Judas had everybody fooled. And when he betrayed Christ and he took that 30 pieces of silver, he went and he threw it at the priest's feet, ran out crying. Oh, he was sorry. He must have repented. No. The Bible says that he'd never repented. You see, sorry doesn't equal repentance. And he wasn't sorry that he did it. He was sorry he got caught. He was actually, you know what he was really sorry about? What he was actually sorry about is he missed the fact that he couldn't fool people anymore. He missed the attention that he got, he missed the responsibility that he had, but he never repented for his hypocrisy. Sorry isn't enough if it doesn't lead to a change. There was a ship called the Queen Mary. Queen Mary uh was one of the biggest ships in 1936 when it was made. It it survived four decades in one world war, going back and forth across the Atlantic. One day the ship was decommissioned and was brought to Long Beach, California, where it would be converted to a museum and a hotel. While they're doing the 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 uh the remodeling and decommissioning of the ship in Long Beach, California, they took the three big... You've seen pictures of the Titanic. They took the big smokestacks off, put them on the dock to refurbish them. Well, when they would take these big smokestacks off the dock and put them on the dock, they would just crumble and collapse. And a little investigation shown that the smokestacks... Were nothing but paint. The three quarter inch steel plating had rusted away years ago. All that was was 30 layers of paint where it had been repainted over several years. There was nothing there. All the steel had rusted away. It looked great on the outside, but it wasn't great on the inside. On the inside, it was fake. On the inside, it was phony. Christianity is getting ready for some opposition. I'm warning you, I'm telling you today, something is happening and, and we're going to have to start fighting. Something is happening and we're going to have to start, we're going to be mocked and we're going to be persecuted and they're going to come through that door and try to tell us what we can and can't preach. It's happening. They are going to come after that book. I'm telling you, it's happening. Opposition is happening. It's coming. We will not be equipped to face this opposition if we are not genuine. We have to be genuine. We have to be the same Christians out there that we are in here. And if we are, there's a promise. Jeremiah told us the promise of God in verse seven. He said, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land. I gave your fathers forever and ever. Let me tell you something about the church. The church will endure. It will. Can hey, nobody come come against the church. Uh, but listen, don't get a false sense of security with that. Don't think because the institution will endure that the church can't fall. Don't think that. Remember Shiloh. Don't think just because the church has has, has promises in the Word of God that you're untouchable. Remember Shiloh. Remember it. The institution may go on, but that does not mean we have to endure with it. Remember Shiloh. Man, I'm just. my plea today is just get genuine. We all have unrepented sin. We all have a, a sin that does so easily beset us. It makes us human. But you give that over to Jesus, quit making it your pet. You give him every other area of your life. Give him that area of your life. It's what's holding you back from a relationship with God. And the only way the church is going to move forward is if the church members are genuine. We, we have to purge the hypocrisy. Judah didn't. They were destroyed and they carried off into captivity and they lost their freedom. The church doesn't have to lose its freedom. If it's people, stand up and turn back to God. That's all I'm saying. Maybe you're in here today and you don't know that you're a Christian. Maybe you're in here today and you don't know that you're saved. Maybe you're in here today and you don't know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven or not. Well, I'm here to tell you today, the Bible says you can know. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that you were on your way to heaven. Today during the invitation, if that's you, if you don't know that you're saved, you don't know that you're on your way to heaven, you can come down there in the invitation. We'll have somebody take a Bible and show you how you can know that you're saved.